Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May 2013 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Joanna Wardlaw. Joanna is one of the authors of a review in this month's issue of The Lancet Neurology. And this is looking specifically at something which is certainly new to me, and this is small vessel disease. Welcome, Joanna. Hello, Richard. I'm uh, Professor Joanna Wardlaw. I'm Professor of Applied Neuroimaging at the University of Edinburgh. Let's start at the very beginning. What is small vessel disease and why is it such a serious problem? Small vessel disease or cerebral small vessel disease is a collective term which is increasingly used to apply to a range of uh, pathological, uh, neuroimaging and clinical features which all seem to arise from a disease which affects the little tiny blood vessels that run deep into the brain to supply the brain with its nutrients, oxygen, and remove waste products. And as well as the pathological changes in the vessels, also the uh, changes in the brain tissue that that vessel disease uh, results in. It's a serious problem for a number of reasons. Firstly, small vessel disease is probably responsible for about a quarter of all ischemic strokes, and also probably for a component of hemorrhagic stroke. It also can cause uh, insidious onset of dementia. It causes problems with gait and balance in older people. It causes cognitive difficulties that fall short of a overt diagnosis of dementia. But all of these more subtle changes tend to creep up on the individual and therefore go unrecognized until the disease is quite well established. If you add all those things together, it's responsible for either uh, individually or as part of uh, common dementias in up to about 45% of all uh, dementias. So 25% of stroke and up to 45% of dementias as well as the gait and physical difficulties that older people experience. It's a serious problem because it's it's been somewhat unrecognized. One of the reasons why so little is known about it is because if you work in the field of stroke, everybody's been concentrating on large disabling Uh, serious uh, large artery strokes and these small vessel strokes have been seen as somewhat trivial and you know less disabling and less of a problem until recently. If you work in the field of dementia you focus on things like Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia which have traditionally been labeled as vascular dementia have been perhaps more marginalized and received less attention. So whichever field you work in it, it, it perhaps has been seen as a sort of uh, lesser importance than whatever has been dominating the field at the time. And I think perhaps it's just gone under the radar. Another reason why it's been somewhat neglected area is that patients often don't notice that they've got features of the disease until quite late on. We're so far very dependent on pathology information, but patients rarely die acutely of the condition, so they might die years later, and then you're trying to backtrack from established pathological changes to what might have been the very earliest Uh, initiating factors, which is obviously very difficult. Patients with small vessel stroke tend to get lumped together with all other types of stroke in large clinical trials, so we don't have very much information about whether treatments that are commonly used for prevention of stroke actually work in small vessel stroke. I think there's a whole range of reasons why it's been somewhat under-recognized, but is actually quite a serious problem. That is interesting, because in summary, really, you're saying that small vessel disease is not actually 
rare. It's actually fairly common, but poorly understood. So that, that is interesting. Moving on from that, what do we know about the established mechanisms that cause small vessel disease? Much of our current thinking is based on pathological studies which were done in the 1950s and 1960s. One of the original pioneers in the field was a neurologist, a neuropathologist called uh, Miller Fisher, who did some very, very detailed pathological dissections of uh, small vessel lesions in the brain in patients who died of other causes as well as of things related to small vessel disease. He suggested that there were abnormalities in the small vessels, which others have interpreted as either being a small vessel form of atheroma, like the atheroma that occurs in in ischemic heart disease or in other common types of stroke, or as part of a um, response to high blood pressure or uh, other changes in the blood vessels which somehow relate to uh, traditional vascular risk factors like hypertension and diabetes and cholesterol and so on. If you read his work in detail, he certainly did describe a few cases where atheroma probably had an important role, either by affecting the larger blood vessels inside the head or just at the start of the small vessels where they perforate into the brain. But he also talked about changes in the endothelium of the vessels, that's the lining of the vessels, uh, which I'll come back to in a minute. So a lot of the thinking has gone along the lines of this is just a small vessel type of atheroma and therefore treatments which work for large artery atheroma should work in small vessel atheroma. Other common causes of strokes such as embolism from the heart, little particles breaking off and blocking the blood vessels in the head, have also traditionally been blamed also for small vessel stroke, although it's increasingly recognized that that's a a relatively rare cause of small vessel stroke. Atheroma of the blood vessels inside the head in the uh, main blood vessel, there's the middle cerebral artery. Uh, The atheroma could affect the origin of the little perforating vessels, lead to narrowing, stenosis, blocking of blood flow, etc. So many of the traditional causes of stroke in general have been also attributed to small vessel disease. Other things which people have thought of picking up on the uh, apparent association with high blood pressure, things like um, the vessels going into vasospasm or the muscle in the vessels becoming progressively thicker to try and cope with the exposure to high blood pressure and to try and respond and limit damage in in the, the brain as a consequence of that. So, So that the changes that were described in the small vessels being secondary to blood pressure and therefore if you treat the blood pressure you can either prevent these changes or or even potentially reverse them. So things like vasospasm has been you know, quite a, a, a popular idea. The response in terms of blood vessel wall thickening from uh, thickening of the muscle in the muscular arteries also referred to as uh, arteriolosclerosis, so hardening of the arteries in the, in the brain, meaning that they can't dilate when they need to to supply more nutrients and energy when you start doing something. A range of ideas around traditional stroke risk factors and also then trying to understand how this process might be affecting the small vessels to make them stop functioning properly. All of those have some support, but increasingly it looks as though particles emboli entering the small vessels are relatively unusual. Atheroma more recent pathology studies suggest that atheroma you know, this isn't simply a form of microatheroma and that atheroma is, in many populations anyway, actually quite a rare cause of intracranial disease. The problem may actually arise in the endothelium, and this is where the idea that problems with maintaining the integrity 
of the blood-brain barrier may lead to this disease becoming established. Just picking up on, on one thing you mentioned that, that you'd come back to, and this is the role, perhaps you could just explain briefly the role of this early diffuse cerebrovascular endothelial failure. That seems to be a key yes. mechanism. So this arose from thinking about the early descriptions of Miller-Fisher and also some observations that we made on on brain imaging. And one way in which this disease has now become much more studyable and much more understandable is because we now have very powerful imaging technologies, which mean that we can study people in life uh, sequentially. We can look at the early changes when they present with a stroke. We can follow those up to find out what happens. We can look at background changes in the brain and see all these other features which are developing, which the patient themselves might not be aware of for many years, but which undoubtedly accumulate and uh, contribute to the burden of damage. So using techniques like that, we were able to think a bit more about exactly what these mechanisms might be. If you examine uh, experimental animal literature as well as uh, human pathology literature, there's actually quite a lot of evidence that indicates that, first of all, this blood-brain barrier is incredibly important. Uh, if you think of your brain as a very, very complicated electrical organ, it's extremely important that the nerve cells and all the other cells in the brain are able to function in a highly controlled environment. And the blood-brain barrier functions as a way of controlling that environment. So you have all sorts of things passing through the brain in the blood in a very high volume of flow, and the blood-brain barrier uh, limits what goes into the brain and what comes back out of the brain to help maintain that environment. And we know that just as a consequence of normal aging, the integrity of the blood-brain barrier changes. So the blood-brain barrier becomes less effective as people get older as part of normal aging. And then what we think may be happening is that in some individuals, either because they have some susceptibility to maybe not having such a a good blood-brain barrier to start with, or because they have been exposed to things which might damage the blood-brain barrier, such as high blood pressure or inflammation, because inflammation is a non-specific uh, trigger that can damage the blood-brain barrier. So a range of exposures, the uh, endothelium, the lining of the blood vessels in the brain becomes less effective at doing its job, and that in turn allows compounds, molecules, fluids to get into the blood vessel walls and not only that to get through the blood vessel walls into the spaces around the blood vessels and then to start accumulating in the brain tissue itself and causing damage and we know that just having more fluid in the wrong part of your brain can contribute to damage to the brain cells if you like it's a bit like having a leak into a complicated telephone exchange in the days when telephone exchanges were made up of large numbers of complex electrical wires. It's not good to have water in the wrong place. So this is a process which potentially diffusely affects the uh, brain, although it may only manifest itself in particular parts of these uh, areas where the perforating vessels run into the brain. By accumulating series of uh, events, the damage gradually builds up one of our interesting observations is this question of, well, why is it that some people develop symptoms and they seem to have had a stroke and so they go to the doctor and, and they present as this 25% of all uh, ischemic strokes? And why is it that other people, you know, the damage builds up in their brain and then you might see it on a scan, but, but no obvious not, not, symptoms, no obvious symptoms mm. or, or if you do sophisticated cognitive tests or you notice that they have some gait disorder, 
It seems that the ones, the lesions that actually cause symptoms are in parts of the brain that are you're very aware of. So in your primary motor and sensory pathways, uh, there, if you have even a relatively small area of damage, you will notice it because we, you know, we're very aware of our motor function and our sensory function. Other parts of the brain, which are perhaps associated with, you know, a more higher, you know, executive function or um, more subtle areas of memory or um, other really important functions, but just ones that you might not notice quite so overtly, lesions forming there might well go less noticed. Uh, although it's interesting that a number of studies are now coming out suggesting that the progression of these features on imaging is associated with sort of subtle, rather nonspecific, you know, neurological uh, symptoms and signs which have often just gone unnoticed or the patients maybe mentioned it but nobody's paid any attention or everybody just thinks you're having an off day or, you know, uh, a senior moment, (laughs) Um, you know, those sorts of things. So it appears that this is a process which affects the brain diffusely, even though it may affect certain areas more than others and therefore cause certain types of symptoms but it's very much a collective uh, process it is very interesting we must unfortunately draw our discussion to a close fascinating though this is so clearly it's a fairly common but poorly defined poorly understood condition this small vessel disease just briefly if you would as a final thought how do you prioritize next steps i mean really it's better determining pathophysiology of, of the disorder isn't it Yes, I think that's essential if we're to be able to have more effective treatments. Um, We need to have very careful clinical evaluation. We need to have much more standardized imaging evaluation. We need to recognize that there are a series of components which actually make up a collective of small vessel disease features. We need to use consistent terms to uh, describe these features, and that actually has been part of a major international initiative over the last year of a group of experts in uh, neuroimaging of small vessel disease getting together and trying to come up with a list of standard terms which we would encourage other people to be able to use so that researchers and clinicians in the field can all be talking a common language. We need to have more studies looking at how these features develop from relatively early stages in life, not just in late life or when somebody finally presents uh, with a stroke. And we need more comparisons between pathological and imaging features so that we know that what we're seeing on imaging is actually what we think it is pathologically. Well, it's a fascinating review. And uh, all I can say is Professor Joanna Wardlaw, many thanks for your insights. and, And let's hope publication of your paper leads to a better understanding of this disorder and ultimately better treatments. But in the meantime, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks again to Joanna Wardlaw and to you all for listening. See you next month.